Hi, and welcome to a second special SEPAD pod reflecting on the fallout from the recent deal normalizing relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Earlier this week, we had a wonderful discussion with Aziz Algashian and Banafshi Kenoush, and I'm delighted that today we are joined by two wonderful scholars, again, one from Saudi Arabia and one from Iran. We're joined, first of all, by Iyad Al-Rafai, who is a PhD student at Lancaster University, a SEPAD fellow, a Saudi academic who works on regional politics, Saudi Arabia, regional security, state weakness, and all the, the interaction of those, those different conceptual and empirical issues. He's published a number of really important articles and opinion pieces, including a piece that looks at this very topic, the transformation of Saudi-Iranian relations. Iyad, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Simon. I'm very excited to be over here. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we're also joined by Abdul Rasul Divsalar. Fazam is a visiting professor at the Universite Cattolica de Sacro Cuoro in Milan. He focuses on Iran's military affairs, Russia-Iran relations, and Persian Gulf security architecture. He's a non-resident scholar at the Middle East Institute in Washington, and Dr. Divsala co-founded and led the Regional Security Initiative at the European University Institute from 2020 to 2022. He's done some fascinating work on transnational governance. He's worked in Tehran in various positions, including as a senior fellow in the Institute for the Middle East Strategic Studies and the Center for Strategic Studies. He's written and edited an extensive number of books looking at security, new security systems, and governance in the Persian Gulf. Farzam, thank you so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure. Thank you so much, uh, Simmons. It's uh, great to be among um, this wonderful group of scholars. I'm really excited about this. And um, again, Me too. I th- I'm really, really proud that we're, we're able to do this and we're able to, to bring you both together. Thank you both for your integrity, bravery, honesty, and wonderful scholarship. It really is um, so important and so wonderful to be able to talk these these issues through. So once we've got that off out of the way, thank you. Um, Farzam, let's start with you, please. Um, we know that the deal has happened. The exact intricacies of the deal aren't public as yet. But what does the deal mean for Iran's security um, strategy, for its defense doctrine, for its uh, engagement in the region? Well, that's a very nice question, uh, Simon. Let me say that um, it was during the last couple of years, to be precise, in the last five years, that I think Iran's perception of Saudi Arabia becomes very much militarized and securitized. I mean, we know that for a long time, uh, Iran's major military threat that was shaping its military doctrine was United States and then maybe Israel. Uh, Saudi Arabia occupied a very um, few space when it comes to Iran's um, defense and security planning. Well, it's true that from the Saudi side, many of Iran's, um, let's say, military strategy or security policies were perceived as threat. But from the Iranian side, uh, those were hinted toward United States. But the shift was that I think from 2015-16 onward, we're seeing a trend which Iranians started to look at um, Saudis also as a possible source of military threat. So I think the deal is important from this perspective, basically, because 
it should be seen as a way that Iranians wants to um, somehow reduce that threat, at least I think in two ways. First, um, I, I think there is a very important principle in Iran's defense policy, and that is the fact that they, they, they avoid to have uh, multiple crises at the same time in order to not have a synergy among various crises. What I'm saying is that, for example, Iranians uh, are not interested to have a regional crisis while there is a nuclear crisis and while there is the domestic crisis. So uh, the, the synergy among these three-dimensional crises can be very lethal to the Islamic Republic's uh, survival. So that's, um, that's my core argument. I think the deal with Saudi Arabia is an attempt to delink among these crises, to calm down one of them, which is in the regional front. Because there is this perception that in Tehran that probably the other two areas uh, somehow will remain. And most importantly, the nuclear crisis is something that, as we know, there is not a very clear way in order to um, parties going back to JCPOA. So we will we are in a phase of um, nuclear escalation, probably, or at least a nuclear escalation, nuclear tension in the current status quo. So. Tehran's decision to give concessions to Saudi Arabia is very much an accepted deal, which um, we know that um, as, as of at least uh, those part of the things which are on open sources, we know that Iran should have accepted with some concessions. So the timing is basically given us to this knowledge that probably Iranians wants to are coming with this belief that they need to sustain in a longer phase with the current nuclear crisis. And, and and a next point, which is, I think is very important again, is Iran-Israeli front, which I think links to the nuclear issue, because so we know that there was a lot of price, a lot of well possibilities or analysis about possible uh, Israeli military operation against Iranian nuclear sites. Uh, so the threat from the Iranian perspective was very much a possible alliance or cooperation. Let's put it at least between Riyadh and Tel Aviv, in which Iran is uh, is perceived as the shared threat between these two states. So the deal, especially by relying on its non-interference uh, terms, which goes back to 2001 security agreement between Riyadh and Tehran, will somehow complicate this perspective. So it somehow uh, deters a possible you know, Saudi-Israeli cooperation on military front. What I'm saying, it does not mean that it can probably stop in full term the Saudi-Israeli normalization, because I think all the Iranians know that that decision relates to many other factors. But what Tehran is very much interested in, to do, in doing so is to stop a chance that that Riyadh-Tel Aviv relation moves toward a military security type of cooperation against the Iranian side. There's a hell of a lot going on there. And I think thank you for for just mapping out some of those those complexities and the, the things that are driving the strategic planning of of people in, in Tehran. Um, I think flagging up the the fears of the interplay of those different aspects, those different security concerns is, is hugely important. And I hope that we will we'll get into to some of those in, in the course of this conversation. But Iyad, from the Saudi side, what are the security uh, dynamics at play here? Um, because Saudi Arabia's security is, is viewed dramatically differently from yeah. Iran. 
right? It's it's security yeah. calculations are are made in a different way, uh, predicated on different sets of assumptions, different mm-hmm. worries, concerns. So, what does the deal do for Saudi security? Well, thinking about Saudi security, um, uh, really, you have hard security issues and you have soft security issues. I would think that the hard security issues uh, related to the deal with Iran would be, uh, uh, you know, dealing with the state failure or the state dissolving in Yemen, Syria, Lebanon, and some somehow in Iraq. Iraq right now is in, in a better case, but yes. Uh, Saudi Arabia has been trapped, uh, as the Saudi perspective sees it, uh, uh, since 2011 from the north with the Syrian struggle going on, from the south with the Yemeni struggle going on, and also from Bahrain and uh, from the west. So Saudi Arabia sees uh, this uh, this situation as un- un- unsustainable, uh, very geographically, uh, you know, speaking. Uh, there is also soft security issues if you are thinking about uh, Vision 2030, which is uh, the main project of the leadership in Saudi Arabia. That project wouldn't be achieved uh, without having the deal with Iran. And thinking about Vision 2030, it's it's not only uh, a national project, but it's also a, a regional one and a global one that is Saudi Arabia is basing its uh, national transformation based upon so um, it's 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 really inter um, inter in, it's it's really inter uh, connected between the regional dynamic and the domestic dynamic that's why in the Saudi calculation having a, a Middle East without uh, civil wars and w- with respect of the sovereignty of uh, of nations and neighboring states is very important to achieve economic cooperation. Uh, without achieving those elements, uh, the Vision 2030 wouldn't be uh, possible, and that would, you know, would would uh, would be very very difficult for the Saudi leadership to conceive. Uh, so you have legitimacy issues, and you have also sovereignty issues uh, surrounding Saudi Arabia's decisions uh, to go in talks with Iran. Um, it's very important to to focus over here on the win-win conclusion. Uh, there is no loser in this in this uh, agreement. Concessions will be made by the two parties, which will lead the region to um, uh, let's see, let's say a cold peace at the beginning, and then moving towards cooperation and hopefully collaboration and integration. If if the region goes with that, you know, with that calculation of having a new regional structure that is based on economic integration rather than ideological competition. So divergence uh, would be, it would be convergence rather than divergence uh, possibilities in the region. Uh, no hegemonic uh, competition, but uh, only, only, you know, national competitions. So no one will control the whole region. You would you would think about competing economically, culturally, socially, but without hegemonic aspirations on the two sides. So that's what that's how I would think about uh, Saudi Arabia's uh, you know seeing or uh, yes uh, looking at security challenges uh, regarding the the deal. Yeah, thanks, Yad. I want to pick up on sovereignty in a minute because I think that's fascinating. But both of you have written about this point and have raised it just now in terms of the transformation of vi- uh, 
perceptions, views of the other, um, and the need to move away from viewing the other in terms of security into more um, collaborative, more fraternal, perhaps, and some of the language coming out of of, of Riyadh and Tehran, in fact, has, has made reference to this fraternal relationship between the, the two. So I wonder how you see that happening. How do we move away from viewing the other in the language of security? Um, Farzam, what, what's your take on that? Oh, I think that's that's a good um, way of looking looking at the situation, but at the same time very complex. He had mentioned a very interesting point, which I want to reinforce uh, what he said that this is a deal that both sides um, have some wind in their own way of defining that wind. This is important because uh, the fact is that they have somehow different objectives and motives from entering to this deal. So why Saudis have accepted is basically different from why Iranians have accepted. There is an opportunity here, but there is also a risk here. The opportunity is that, um, the, you know, well, we can talk about um, a variety of things because both sides are very much interest-based in their way of uh, doing things. So we're, we can be hopeful that, well, by expanding the possible interest of both the states to various other fronts that also Iyad mentioned, economy, trade, and other areas, we can make this uh, normalization more sustainable. But at the same time, you know, the the risk and the, and the negative part is that, um, you know, each side may somehow change calculation when it reaches to its objective. Because the timeline of reaching the objective and the, the timing of um, urgency for each side for the reasons or motives that they are involved in this deal is different. For example, um, as I said, for, for Saudis that might seem, uh, because they have this vision to 2030, they might pursue the um, objective a bit longer. I mean, this is a long term for them. Maybe for Iranians, that's a shorter term view. For them, it's important that they overcome this nuclear crisis and when that nuclear crisis is overcome, we are not sure what would be the uh, calculations in Tehran. So there are risks there. I mean, to, to come back to your question, I think it's important that we we we, we innovated the things that how we can secure this deal and we use it as a first step for a process of normalization, a gradual process of of uh, regional security building. That this is just the first step. But what 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 makes me thinking, I think, is that how we can secure this first step, how we can protect it from this challenge of, you know, timing and divergence objectives and, and motives, how we can ch how we can protect it from the spoilers. We know that, you know, there are also spoilers in the process. The spoilers can be internal spoilers, can be external. You know, for example, um, we know that in both countries, there are voices that are skeptical of, of the other side because, well, understandable for a long time they had this mistrust together from so side people are saying look you know these iranians we cannot trust in them let's not uh let's not go through this process from the iranian side there are this political faction type of politics which you know uh people can um can sacrifice the national interest because of their political group's interest so means that if the next president election 
um, having a bad relation with Saudi Arabia will be a benefit for some political groups, then we are in a problem because some political groups might sabotage the process because of their group interests. So there is internal spoilers. There are external spoilers too. External spoilers, I think the major one, I think, could be Tel Aviv. That's uh, that's Israel is the player right now that feels somehow, you know, um, threatened or isolated or abandoned by this process, whatever you call it. But part of his calculations um, are not working right now. So how Israel can enter to this process, try to reframe it or reshape it into their own interest is something that we need to bring into the calculus. So what I'm saying is that, just uh, finish my work, is that I think we need to bring all these factors at the same time and to think innovative, innovatively. And especially people like us, uh, I remember in your podcast uh, two days ago, three days ago, as he's mentioned, a very important point. I repeat what he said. And he said that the people like us that are independent scholars, we have a responsibility here, I think. And that is the, to think um, innovatively and for the, the interest of all, of all of these two countries in order to how we can seal this process from these, um, uh, let's say, dangers in the way. Yeah. Back to you, I think that's that's yeah. really um, really really valuable. Thank you, Ed. What's your take on this? Yes, um, if I may just interject regarding having the challenges and uh, the future uh, is not so bright as as Farzan said. That it might be not so bright, but that's why you have an international guarantor, which is uh, the Chinese government. Uh, if, if both. Uh, both states would achieve their targets and then would leave the agreement. So there is no need for it. That's why you have the Chinese guarantor who is looking for the regional structure based on its global vision. Uh, and we would hope that the Chinese government would be a serious uh, guarantor for this agreement. I think they are going to be so because they are having, you know, uh, a real pride regarding having this agreement signed in China as the first uh, global agreement to be signed there, you know, uh, ushering a new international era of, of multipolarity rather than unipolarity. So that, that, that might be uh, a guarantee for, for both parties, hopefully. Um, but to, to, uh, to answer Simon's question regarding um, what, how to move from here, I think uh, that started two years ago. We had seen uh, the scaling down of uh, of a propaganda in in journals. We have seen also toning down of harsh language and harsh rhetoric in, in Saudi media, and I think also in Iranian media. That's 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 a good move uh, on on both parties uh, since 2021. I would think so because after 2019. After the attacks on Aramco, uh, the situation in Saudi and also in Iranian um, media was was very very terrible uh, in comparison to the situation in 2021, uh, situation in 2022. So that's uh, that's also should be uh, looked at. Uh, toning down of, of the language would chat would it change the public perception of any deal that would happen in the future. So that, that was a good uh, gesture from both. Um, also, there are also cultural elements, uh, religious elements, uh, environmental elements that both states can work on 
to advance their their interests uh, based on this agreement. Uh, cultural elements Saudi Arabia right now is is, the, is really uh, having entertainment as a field of competition in Saudi Arabia. So I think um, the Iranian culture is very loved in Saudi Arabia, Iranian music, Iranian food, uh, what have you. That's also a door of of, um, of, of going back to normal. Um, also, you have the religious uh, you know, element. You have a very good minority in Saudi Arabia that is a Shia minority would visit Iran on annual basis. Uh, and also you have uh, an Iranian who are visiting Saudi Arabia also on an annual basis for Hajj and Umrah. That's also the religious, uh, you know, door can also help in getting the relations back to normal. Also thinking about environmental issues. I think it's, it's also in the blueprint of Vision 2030. Uh, Saudi Arabia is taking this leadership uh, uh, with its projects, uh, uh, the Middle East Green Project and the Saudi Green Project. Also, Iran is very interested in environmental issues. So that's also another uh, area of collaboration that could be, you know, could move uh, the situation to more positivity and to really getting the world into action. Uh, I would think that those four elements would be very helpful in, in, in moving on uh, from here. So if I jump in... Uh, I, I want to add something very to the very interesting points that you mentioned about the defense dimension of uh, possible nexus. Yeah. I think still we need to work a lot. Work a lot. I know it's always difficult, hard security uh, to be the first step. But as we saw also in this deal, it was the hard security that worked as the first step, right? So basically, the the, the national security advisors or heads who were responsible for that concept of security, defense, and threats, understanding of that, you know, and, and they were the one who actually could have controlled their security apparatus. They were signing the deal. So that means that uh, we need to work on that front even more deeper now. Um, I, I, one, of the, one of the steps I think is quite important at this moment is the defense talks. You know, we, um, we we know that the deal was, I mean, as far as we know, based on the open source information, we know that there are some promises to, but there are very big promises or very much not detailed yet. So I think what the next step could look like is somehow that the officials um, in track two and track one and a half type of meetings that can help both sides realize what is the other side's defense doctrine, what the other side's threat perception is. If, if, for example, Iranians are building some basings or some missile sites in the south close to the Persian Gulf, is that really going to hit Saudi Arabia's market or who's the target of these these um, the, these missiles are? Who are the targets of Saudi's um, uh, yeah. capabilities in the south? I think in the military side, that is... I mean, I don't want to replicate what we, we had between Russia and the United States as a very strategic stability dialogue, but I think we can learn a lot from those types of uh, arguments, which is honestly uh, impacting a lot the way that people in Tehran and Riyadh are thinking. Uh, one example I give um, to you is that uh, we, um, in Tehran, people are, I mean, worried about that um, integrated missile defense system that Saudi Arabia is working with the United States. And I think uh, tracing that, I think part of the new basings that they did in the South, part of their 
more working on short-term missiles, uh, which are can be interpreted as threats to Saudi Arabia, of course, is partly is, is that because they want to bring back this offensive-defensive balance, a balance which they think that an integrated missile defense system in future will 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 exhaust that balance. So these are the areas that I think um, have, we we have very few works on them. We have not really openly discussed them. We need even more open discussion of these types of issues. We need even more open discussion of what is the Saudi military doctrine is and what is Iranian military doctrine is, how their threat definition is, what is the priority of the threat, which uh, side is probably uh, going to uh, to have, um, um, I mean, its military decisions based on seeing the other side the threat. And then, you know, the, and, and if you go back to the, Official arguments, even you see that um, even Zarif, I remember many times he was arguing that um, previous administration um, in in Tehran they were arguing that look, you know, we we need to have a defensive capability. So um, with talks with Saudis, I think they can arrive to an understanding that let's not develop some parts of our capabilities that can cause a threat to the to the to the neighboring state. So this is next step, I think, also. Another issue is about, uh, I want to add, moving away from defense and security, is about economy. I know that many discuss these days that, okay, economic integration is very difficult because of sanctions, but I still think that despite the fact that U.S. secondary sanctions may prevent Saudi's investment in Iran and may prevent further work together, but still the two sides can have discussions on that. They can MOUs, they can they can move forward the discussion for the time when the the, the secondary sanction are removed or for the time that the possibility for doing that is enough. I mean, uh, while that might not necessarily be operationalized in the next one or two years, that type of discussions would very much reduce the threat perceptions and can um, strengthen the relation. That's very much look, looks like the way that Chinese-Iranian 25 years agreement looks like. You know, many of yeah. the articles that are inside there are not the articles that are uh, feasible to do in the next year because of U.S. secondary sanctions, right? But the whole discussion is very much impacting both sides' mentality regarding each other. I think that's so valuable, Farzan. Please, yeah, jump in. Yeah. Yeah, just one point regarding military doctrines. I think we are in a very sensitive timing globally that we do see shifting sands within the region and also internationally. That's, I, that's why I think regional doctrines in both Saudi Arabia and Iran are a bit malleable right now rather than being hardly paced or hardly hard structured. That's, that's also, you know, Saudi Arabia military doctrine uh, was also um, in a very collaborative, ma- was based in a very collaborative manner with the American doctrine, but with the American withdrawal from the Middle East, you have a change of doctrine. Mm-hmm. Also with the Chinese agreement with Iran, you have also a shift in the doctrine that is based on the regional and the international uh, shifts. Uh, that, that's why you cannot really identify the, the doctrines right now, but it's worth the discussion, to be honest. Let me Go stop ahead. you there, Riyad, please, um, because I want to get onto that point in a minute. Um, but I think what you've both pointed to is the important role that people like yourselves have to play in breaking down barriers, breaking down perceptions, stereotypes of the other. 
and contributing to broader pools of knowledge about these really important issues. Um, Farzam, you, you did this wonderful um, edited collection of essays a few years ago with um, Luigi Narbonne, um, titled Stepping Away from the Abyss, A Gradual Approach Towards a New Security System in the Persian Gulf, which I think really flags up the the sort of the process of transforming relations and the myriad different arenas in which this plays out. And then he had your piece with um, Samir Nazirzadeh on on the discursive transformation, the desecuritization of things, I think is is so important that this is not just a a single uh, a singular agreement, let's say, that will be a panacea for the 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 complexities within this rivalry, but rather it it is a stepping stone, perhaps, for um, addressing, transforming, uh, reimagining all of these different areas. But um, I want to. There's a couple of things I want to touch on. Um, the first is this question about external powers. Um, Iad, you you made a point about the U.S. withdrawing from the region. I think that's that's maybe debatable, but it's also maybe a conversation for another time. Um, but obviously, it's the it's the role of China that has ultimately got this agreement over the line after years of diplomatic initiatives trying to do this. So Beijing ultimately got it over the line. And that was a surprise to many because of the shift from a purely economic engagement with the region to a more sort of hands-on political activity. I wonder, from the Saudi side, what does this tell us about relations with China and the US? Are we seeing a, a new type of engagement from external powers with the region? Or is this just a um, a pragmatic move from Beijing trying to protect its economic investments in the region? No, I think uh, we're seeing a new a new regional structure and also a new global structure. Uh, so Saudi Arabia hosted the Chinese president uh, in in Riyadh uh, and to have a meeting with the Arabs uh, with the Arab leaders uh, equally. To what they had with the American president as well. That also tell that also tells you uh, that there is a shifting uh, from uh, shifting order from unipolarity to multipolarity, at least in the Middle Eastern system uh, right now. Uh, so uh, I would think that it's been it's been right for the Chinese uh, to 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 really to have to, to have their moment in the Middle East uh, for a decade right now. But they were very smart about uh, achieving uh, their uh, their goal uh, in the region uh, without having uh, too many politically uh, too many ideologically based uh, issues uh, similar to to the American situation or the West, uh, where you had a different uh, alignment with the Middle East since 2011 that was based really on the the being uh, or, or advancing the Arab Spring uh, in face of the regimes in the Middle East or in the region that was also seen as a threat by the, the, the regimes within the region. So the, America has been uh, moving to the East as, as Barack Obama proposed in 2014 and also as Biden proposed when he became a president uh, that the Chinese threat is the most uh, dangerous for America. And that's why America needs to move to the east. Uh, and 
facing all those challenges within the Middle East since 2011, America showed uh, less seriousness regarding the Syrian crisis, regarding the Yemeni crisis, and regarding also the Libyan crisis. There was no seriousness uh, taken by the American side. Um, not similar to the Chinese. So the Chinese, uh, the Chinese side, they would interact only when they have something to do, something to achieve, not only to be present uh, within, the, within a conflict. Uh, similar to the Americans or to the EU, where they want to be present in each conflict. I think that uh, the Chinese been very smart about uh, achieving that 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 presence that is needed by the regional players, not uh, not uh, not a hegemonic aspiration on the part of the Chinese government, uh, which is interesting to see. Um, which is different from the American mediation within the Middle East, which is based on a hegemonic uh, interaction within the region. I would think so. Uh, however, with caveat that it's, it's also the Chinese government looking for uh, to equal the American hegemonic order uh, within the region and in different regions. That's why it, it, uh, you have you have shifting military doctrines and you have shifting also political uh, decisions within the region because of the international system that you are, we are having, uh, especially after the Ukrainian, Syrian, uh, Russian crisis, uh, which challenged and changed too many aspects within the Middle East and also within the international system. So that's why I would, I would think about the Chinese engagement uh, in comparison to the American engagement with the Middle East, especially since 2011. Well, let me add one more layer to what uh, Iyad said, um, and that is the fact that I think the Ukrainian crisis is quite critical here. Why? Because it showed to, to many regional actors that U.S. is not even ready to go and put uh, its troops in order to defend a country like Ukraine, which was so critical for European security. So how then you, Americans can enter into the Middle East and fight uh, for defense of Saudis. So that basically, I think, mm, I'm, I'm guessing that, I'm not sure about that it was this really, but this is an analytical perspective. I think this should have impacted Saudi strategic thinking that, uh, look, you know, uh, apart from what has happened in 2019 and 2020, the, the attacks, well, we have the second um, factor, which is uh, showing that the Americans have not changed. This is a U.S. strategic way of doing things. It's not any more interested to enter into every regional conflict. So it means that Saudi Arabia should fight alone with Iran. And that means, okay, deterrence alone is not enough. Let's go and complement deterrence with, with engagement. So basically that new understanding helped, I think, to, to, um, you know, to this uh, deal that we are seeing and to shift of possible calculus in Riyadh. But at the same time on the Iranian side, and, and moving toward China, of course, to bringing another actor in order to complement the guarantees of, as, as Iyad mentioned correctly. So another dimension on the Iranian side when it comes to China, I think Iran also was very much interested to very much interested and keen to bring China from years before, because believes that that's a path toward de-Americanization of regional security architecture in the uh, in, in in the region in the Gulf. So 
that is one stage. It's not going to cause expelling of, of U.S. forces from the region, as we are seeing U.S. presence is there. It's not going to change, but that's one process. It will limit the freedom of action of Americans in the in the regional security, and that's a good thing for, for Iranians. You press more Americans there, and then you act. So if you put that close to what Iranians are doing with Russians and Chinese in military drills in, the, in the, just um, last week, they ended their military drills in the North uh, Indian Ocean, uh, that north part of Indian Ocean, showing to you that there is this tendency. So Iran is looking at this deal by the Chinese involvement in a more broader turn to it, seeing it as part of it. You know, what I can call it is that from the Iranian perspective, that there's a, there's a convergence of two things. First, one argument of a look to the East policy, which bringing China is to everything that is involving security you know, justi justified by that narrative, and then look at uh, the neighborhood policy of Raisi administration, which is uh, contributing to the to that discussion. So the global component is central, obviously, in the calculations of, of both states. And I think that's it's really valuable having that insight. So thank you, both of you. But one of the things that I also wanted to touch on is sort of dropping down a level and I've read a number of, of rather poor opinion pieces that have suggested that this agreement will lead to a resolution of conflict in Yemen. It will resolve tensions across the Middle East. Essentially, um, the argument is that the agreement is a panacea for all of the region's ills. Now, I, th I find several problems with that. But I wonder if you can both elaborate on the... On, on the various takes that you've got on what this means for um, for for division, for geopolitical tensions, for domestic tensions across the region. Now, Iyad, I know you've done a lot of work on, on Yemen, so perhaps we can start with you here. I mean, what does what does this agreement mean for conflict in Yemen? Uh so I think regarding Yemen, the political solution uh, has been the only solution uh, uh, advanced by, by political parties within the country and also regionally. Uh, based upon that, uh, I think that moving on, um, the agreement would help to move on, but not to solve all political issues within the region. I think it will help to move on to be, uh, to the, um, for, for the issues to be internal rather than external, uh, moving back to Yemen rather than moving back to Saudi Arabia or uh, moving forward to Saudi Arabia or Iran to solve the issue, uh, cards would be uh, brought back to each uh, domestic uh, case. In, in Yemen, uh, you have political parties who are uh, divided between regional um, regional uh, alignments and also ideological alignments. You have the Southern movement and you have issues within the, uh, uh, within the Al-Houthi and Al-Islah parties in the, in the North. Uh, bringing back uh, the cards on the table uh, for domestic players would be the, the most uh, wanted uh, or the most achievable uh, decision based on the Saudi-Iranian agreement is to bring back the issue to the domestic audience rather than the regional or the international audience. And that would help to solve the issue or 
to to just protect it from being regional war or international conflict bringing back the conflict to the its its origin its domestic roots and dealing with the real issues behind that conflict we know that uh, the conflict in yemen is not regional one it's it's domestic one that is utilized by regional players to win a struggle over the regional uh, system um solving those domestic issues would mean strengthening the Yemeni state or agreeing upon a structure of the Yemeni state in the future which is not ha- which hasn't been achieved especially uh, because of the southern uh, movement and their the, their their uh, focus on the independence before even solving the the the, the issue with the north so I think that that's how how the the agreement would help is to bring back the issue to the domestic audience to solve it. Um, and there yeah. are suggestions, Fazam, that that um, Tehran has agreed to stop arming the Houthis. Uh yeah. I, I, there was there, there was this news. Um, well said by some people. Um, I'm not sure how much correct is that, or which I think I can assume that. Uh, in short term, that probably would be. But uh, what I what I have doubt is is the long term uh, policy of Tehran in Yemen, because as I said before, um, the Yemen for Iran is very much. Um, I, I don't agree that it's a tactical uh, law hanging fruit. It's a strategic thing. Yemen is is somewhere that through the that geography, Iran can post costs in Saudi Arabia in a possible longer-term conflict. It's a corridor to reach to the inland of the Saudi Arabia. So militarily, it has a value. And it, it, it is important, the strategic um, leverage that Tehran has built and has been able to uh, use it. So uh, there is no sense that the Tehran will abandon that. It's looked like that someone argues that Saudi Arabia that has agreed to um, tone down, for example, its uh, TV channels like the, like the Iran International will close that. Well, we're not going to see a closure of Iran International TV the same way we're not going to see the, 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 the end of Iranian influence in, in Yemen. So that's why the argument that we made before, that this is a window of opportunity. How it can be sustained very much depends that how we can deepening how we can, in what process, and how we can deepen our uh, the, the two sides' possible military and hard security uh, mutual understanding that led to a point that they pull back some of their tools and they pull back some of their leverages in a more sustainable way. I, I think, in short term, as, as the news said, we might see a calming down in, 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 in Yemen, and as uh, Yad mentioning, that's a more uh, internal dynamics will come uh, more uh, prominent rather than the regional interventions there. Uh, but how long that remains, um, I'm, I'm, I, I, I prefer to wait and see that how Riyadh and Tehran would be able to deepening their security discussion mm. and defense policy. Yeah, thanks. So it, it also, I think, is necessary to touch on Syria and recent suggestions that um, a Saudi Emirati Jordanian initiative to to reintegrate Syrian President Bashar al-Assad within the Arab and international folds, um, breaking Damascus's relationship with Tehran in the process in return for um, tens of billions of dollars for 
um, rebuilding a country that he has devastated. That, I think, gives us a, a slightly different take on what the agreement means more broadly, because I think if this is accurate, then it shows that the Saudis are still competing with the Iranians, even though there is a diplomatic agreement in place here. Well, um, Simon, can I uh, intervene? Uh, I read it differently. Okay. From from the Iranian side, um, you know, there for them it's the stabilization of Syria and Iraq. Mm. For them, it is calming down because you know, uh, as I said before, their principle is that let's calm down the regional, let's calm down the regional tension because it will it will take less scarce resources that Tehran at this moment has in order to sustain the competition. There was this discussion in Tehran, I think, the last two, three years, that how sustainable Iran's regional influence can be if uh, the tension will continue with such a pace and such a, such a speed, right? Mm-hmm. So part of the logic could be that Iran benefits from that because, because Iran will actually keep the status quo. Iranian influence, as we know very well, and I just recently published a piece on that, that how Iran delivers security assistance, it's a long-term sustained practice. It's not a project that mm-hmm. starts uh, and there's a deadline and, and then it's uh, finished, right? So it's a sustained projection of influence. And that sustained projection of influence will not go away if someone as a new investor gets in and, and invests some money there. We, we saw that in, in Iraq that despite the U.S. presence there and, and billions of dollars of U.S. money go, going to Iraq, Iranians' influence remained there. So yeah. from their perspective, they see it as, as a strategy to keep the status quo. So basically means that Iran that has an upper hand in Syria and in Iraq uh, will be able, uh, by reducing tension with Saudi Arabia, to keep it a status quo for the time being until it can come back and, and, and try to regain new new uh, scores. What's your take, Yed? Um, so yesterday, Saudi Arabia entered the new negotiations with the Syrian regime to bring back consular relationships and consular services to the peoples of Saudi Arabia and Syria. And I've seen yesterday interesting uh, uh, interesting pattern by Syria, uh, by Syrian uh, regime figures. Uh, they were very congratulating to the to the TIB. They were very exciting going back to Saudi Arabia, as they said, and it showed, uh, a, it showed a value of Saudi Arabia, a regional value, and also uh, the value of Saudi Arabia within the Syrian regime itself, within some figures within the re- Syrian regime. Not only the Syrian, so the Syrian regime is not only Bashar al-Assad, and we had Ali Mamluk, and also the current intelligence uh, uh, services boss of Syrian um, army. I forgot his name. The current one, he has been in Saudi Arabia for the last two weeks, as Reuters reported yesterday. Uh, who are very different uh, figures than Bashar al-Assad. They are very pragmatic figures. Uh, so I don't think that sticking with the Syrian structure or with the Syrian state as it is would be um, would mean that Bashar al-Assad would continue to be the president uh, or would be, would continue to be the leader of the Syrian state. Uh, this can be also negotiated. Uh, also, the, the main roots of the conflict uh, of the conflict in Syria needs to be revisited as well because we cannot postpone the issue 
the situation in Syria is unsustainable. It also has ramifications on, on, on Turkey and also on Jordan. And both Turkey and Jordan are pushing for a new, for, for a solution for the Syrian case. It's not only Saudi Arabia who's looking for a solution for the Syrian case without really having Bashar al-Assad as the head of the government. Uh, we are not looking for a change of the whole government, but at least without having him uh, as a president, because I don't think it's, it's uh, conceivable for the international system um, to have him as, as the president that is, will lead uh, uh, the, Syrian, the Syrian state in the future. I think also the same will happen to the opposition who needs really to be <clears throat> revisited. Its leadership needs to be uh, changed as well. Uh, I have seen rumors regarding that, uh, regarding having a new structure for the Syrian opposition, having more technocrats or figures rather than ideologically based figures. That's how you can really, with those negotiations, we would hope that new uh, bodies, new political bodies would appear in the Syrian case with having those negotiations between the system, between the regime and the oppositions, we would, ha we would have new bodies uh, emerging uh, from that situation. So that's, I think, how, how Saudi Arabia would think about Syria. Uh, because, this, uh, yes, this also the, uh, we, ha we have in Saudi Arabia 3 million Syrians. Uh, Without paper, without proper paperwork, they would go to Bahrain to renew their paperwork, which is uh, would would cost them three times uh, the cost if they are renewing those paperwork in Saudi Arabia. So it's 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 a multi um, multi level issue that you have domestic uh, issues uh, regarding the population, the Syrian population. You have also uh, political issues uh, that is. In dealing with the leadership, both in the opposition and in the Syrian state itself. Well, I think what you've just identified there, Iyad, can be extrapolated to say this is actually what's going on here, that there is a multifaceted, multi-level, um, multipolar set of struggles going on, set of contestations, set of issues that are deeply political but intersectional, intergenerational, um, cross-political, cross-sectarian divisions, cross-ethnic divisions, uh, cross-ideology, and trying to map all of this out and trying to understand how this sort of intersects, if you will, is the challenge that policymakers have got to, to navigate in both Riyadh and Tehran, and it is quite the challenge. I think the the deal in Beijing is is a good step, but it certainly is the case that there's a lot more work to be done. Um, we've been talking for a long time, and there's so much more that we could talk about. We've not touched on Lebanon or Iraq, for example, or Bahrain, um, which probably means we need to do a follow-up at some point. But... I wonder if we can close by getting your one-line take, gentlemen, a one-line take on the agreement. When you heard about it, having had um, a week, two weeks to think about it, what is your take? One line, please. Farzan. Well, uh, le let me say my personal feeling first. I become very happy because I think... Uh, that's a very positive thing. Not understanding it's a small step, but 
actually we talked a lot theoretically and practically we've seen that we need the small step we don't have any grand bargain we don't have any comprehensive path that we can reach to that comprehensive path and and transforming everything so personally i become very happy uh, i felt more responsibility for myself and people likewise to to do more uh, and in order to to uh, to shape minds and, and reduce the uh, the stereotypes, as you said, and um, well, that's my one line. I'm, I hope that I can work more with my Saudi friends and Saudi colleagues, especially this time that we um, we are, um, as as we said, this window of opportunity is not cannot remain always open if we cannot use it properly. So I'm hopeful to work more with my friends in Riyadh than that. Thanks, Farzam. Yet, please. I mean, it's it's the same amount of happiness that Farazam had when he heard about it. I had the same amount or more than that because it's been it's been it's been very difficult to twenty years since two thousand and three, but especially since two thousand and eleven and since two thousand and eighteen, Saudi public would was very was very. Uh, not positive to say the least looking at the challenges that 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 is coming from iran so that's what's very positive uh, uh tip uh and i was very happy the first thing i thought about is to have collaboration actually with iranian colleagues uh, and they asked my my head of department if we can have that he said it's too soon to have it so i said okay that's all right um but yes i mean it, it was very it was received very positively with, uh, within the public of Saudi Arabia. Um, it's a good window, as Farazan said, to move uh, um, ahead to a new regional structure, hopefully, inshallah, that brings peace and the prosperity to the region as the region has suffered for the last, for the last uh, 100 years, to say the least. Uh, hopefully, we'll move on to a more positive end. Thank you. Thank you so much, Iyad. And thank you too, Farzam. It's been a real pleasure talking with you both. And thank I think, you for organizing this. Oh, it's a, it's a pleasure. I think listening to you both and listening to Aziz and Banafshi, it's clear that there are so many points of synergy. There's so much enthusiasm for Saudis and Iranians to work together from a grassroots, bottom-up approach to uh, discussing politics and, and regional politics. So let's hope that this window can be um, can be used positively by those in positions of power. And I'm sure that you both and others like you will continue to do your very, very best to, uh, to support the process and try and help work towards a, a more peaceful, more collaborative relationship between the Saudis and the Iranians. So Farzam, Iyad, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. A huge thanks to Iyad and Farazan for their time just now. You can find them both on Twitter at Iyad Al Rifai, that's at Iyad Al Rifai, and at Div Salar, that's at Div Salar. Do give them a follow, check out their work. They've been doing fabulous stuff. It's a real pleasure to have them on and to follow up the great discussion with Aziz and Benafshe from earlier in the week. As always, a huge thank you to you for listening. Until next time.